Well, we have come to the ending of Genesis. We only have a handful of sermons left in this, the second longest book in the Bible. We're at sort of an epilogue in the story. The story's been wrapped up. Joseph and his family are reunited. The brothers have loved, they love each other again, Joseph having forgiven his brothers. Uh, Things are good in the family now, and they have settled in Egypt where they will dwell for the next 400 years. But there is one big question that has hung over this long, drawn-out story, and in a sense has held over the whole book of Genesis since chapter 3, and that is, who will be Jacob's heir? Who will he choose to get the firstborn's share in the inheritance? Now, we haven't been thinking about that much all along, but the characters in the story, the people in the story, have. Why why did Judah and his brothers sell Joseph into slavery? They felt threatened that Joseph was going to get the firstborn share of their father's inheritance. And why did Reuben try to stop it and rescue him to try to win his father's favor again so that he could get the firstborn's share back? And why did Judah do so many of the things that he did after that? Because he thought he was going to get the inheritance and he was setting up his dynasty after him. All the little intricacies in the plot all along the way have had this one cloud hanging hanging over it. They are fighting over who gets the firstborn's rights in the next generation. And the closing chapters of Genesis answer that big question for us. So there's not a lot of story, not a lot of drama, but all the story and drama from chapters past finally comes to a head and gets some resolution. This begins now in chapter 48, when the time comes that Jacob is in old age, he becomes ill, and he knows he is about to die. So he begins calling his sons to him to bless them. The one that he blesses first gets the firstborn's share. As he does so, we learn a lot about ourselves These are the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God, and we learn a lot about them in this process. And we, the people of God now, God's chosen people, the the new Israel, in some ways you could say we learn a lot about ourselves as we watch Jacob bless these 12 tribes. Today we wonder who's going to get the firstborn's share. And the setup so far works like this. Jacob has 12 sons. The firstborn was Reuben, and so by default he would get the firstborn's share. But when Reuben came of age, he reached for it early. He said, I I want to be head of the family now. And the way that he did this was by going into the tent of his father's wife, who was not his mother, and raping her. A way of not only violating her, but saying, what was dad's is now mine. I'm taking over. And Jacob, the dad, heard about this, but we don't know how he reacted, and it's just been hanging over the whole time. Is, is he going to lose out on the firstborn share because of the despicable thing that he did? Well, if he does, next in line are Simeon and Levi, who are not twins, but they kind of behave together as if they were twins. Uh, And they also did something that really displeased their father. It was really wicked. When their sister was kidnapped by a prince of a neighboring city, they went out to rescue her, as was good. They went and rescued their sister. But along the way, they killed every man in the city. And then they plundered the city, took all of the goods. And then they kidnapped all of the wives and children of the city and took them as their own. 
This, of course, gave their family a reputation for being barbarians in the area because it was a barbaric act. And so they lowered the reputation of that family there, and Jacob was displeased with them. So the first three have all done things that really displeased their father. And that brings us to Judah, the fourthborn, who was a pretty terrible character early on, but changed his ways and is now not only trustworthy, but even Christ-like and sacrificial in the way he's been leading the family. And Jacob has been trusting him to do a number of leadership tasks, so maybe, maybe Jacob's going to give it to Judah now. And then, way down the line at number 11, is Joseph. And he's significant, he's a contender, because he's Jacob's favorite. So maybe Jacob's going to skip them all and give it to Joseph. Who will he bless first? Who gets the firstborn's inheritance? We find out now in chapter 48. Let's read it together. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in his bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in this land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go in Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to them, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger And his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. 
And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Through Jacob's blessing of his forgotten grandsons, the Lord shows us his heart for the overlooked and helps us to be content when we appear to be insignificant. The great surprise here in this story, the big twist at the end, is that for all of the fighting these brothers have done over the firstborn share in the inheritance, and for all of the speculating we have done along the way about who might be blessed first and who might receive it, the firstborn's blessing goes to someone we weren't even thinking about. Jacob blesses his grandsons of his second youngest son over his firstborn and secondborn, saying, I have made them my sons as Reuben and Simeon, my first and secondborn. And what's more than that, he blesses the secondborn grandson over the firstborn grandson. So not only are we looking at someone we didn't even expect would win out in this contest, but even among the two of them, the one who was least likely. And so it is a clear picture of God's love for finding the overlooked, finding the ones we have forgotten about, and blessing them. So even the parts of stories like this that feel out of place in modern life have deep meaning for modern life. We haven't been thinking about succession very much as we have walked through this. We don't think about first heirs very much in that way. Uh, We think in other terms, uh, and yet there is deep meaning for our lives here. Not only has the Lord along the way chosen the the second born son over the first born son many times but now within his kingdom he is choosing to bless the lowly and forgotten ones over the prideful the entitled and the ambitious ones and so let me put it in terms that make more sense to us let's take our hearts back to fourth grade kickball For some of you, the most scarring moments of your life. Let's just go back there for a moment, all right? There are are two captains on the field, and and the PE teacher says, okay, you're a captain, you're a captain, come forward, you guys pick teams. And the the one captain who's going to go first says, you know what? I don't need to pick first, you can pick first. Let's the other guy pick first. So the other guy picks the very best kicker and player on the team. and So they already have the advantage. And then uh, the, the first captain says, well, who... 
Is there anybody here who just can't kick at all? And you raise your hand, and he says, I want you. I want you on my team. You can't kick. I want you. And you come in. And now this is your team captain who's chosen you because you can't kick and you're on his kickball team. And so then the other captain goes again, okay, who's the fa- you're the fastest. Come and be on my team. And then your captain says, okay, is there anybody who can't catch at all? And like four of you raise your hands, right? And then he says, all right, I'll take the four of you guys and you can just have four picks next. And he picks the next four best players. And it comes back to your captain again, and he says, all right, now I want the slowest kid on the team, and that's you, so you, you, you come here. And so now he's got the, the worst kickers, the worst catchers, the slowest people, and then finally says, okay, does anybody just not know how to play kickball? I'd like you on my team as well. And the ones that don't know the rules, he's got them on his team. Uh, this is the way the Lord chooses teams. This, this is how he chooses who's going to be in his kingdom and on his team. As First Corinthians says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were noble birth when the Lord brought you in. And yet, God has chosen the weak to shame the wise, right? And what we're seeing here, all of these characters are within the kingdom. And even among those who are in his kingdom, he loves to take the lowly and lift them into the prominent place. And so now the kickball game begins, and he says, okay, all of you guys that couldn't kick, y'all are up first, right? And, and who was it who couldn't catch? Okay, I want you at first base. And the one who couldn't throw, I want you at shortstop, right? He's taking the very worst of the worst and putting them in the prominent positions. And then he wins the game 10 to nothing. And everyone knows that it's not because of how great his team is. It's because he's just that good of a coach. The Lord chooses the weak of the world to shame the wise. The weak of the world to shame the strong. The foolish of the world to shame the wise. And this has been a theme throughout the book of Genesis that has finally reached its head. Even in the first generation, the Lord began lifting the younger brothers over the firstborn who we would expect to receive the promise. The Lord promised Eve that one of her descendants was going to come and and fix everything and crush sin and Satan and death for us, a mighty Savior King. And when she has a son and names him Cain, we expect this firstborn son is either going to be the one or he's going to give birth to the one who's going to save us and redeem us. And then a second son is born, Abel, and then Cain kills Abel, so Cain's disqualified and Abel is dead, and the Lord gives them a third son, Seth, and he's the one who inherits the promise, the thirdborn over the firstborn. And later on, Abraham has two sons, an older son, Ishmael, and a younger son, Isaac, and it is the younger son, Isaac, who is elevated over the firstborn and receives the promise. And Isaac has two sons, twins, Esau the older and Jacob the younger. And his younger son, Jacob, is the one that receives the promise and is elevated over the firstborn. So we saw over and over in Genesis that the the Lord loves to choose the lowliest to be part of his kingdom. Now that's being built on. Now all these 12 sons are in the kingdom, so everybody's in. Once we're in... Then he loves to elevate the lowest among us above the highest among us. Okay, so I got to pause there. We just talked about 
entering into the kingdom. And I know most of you have your faith in Jesus Christ. You consider yourself a part of the kingdom of God. There are probably some here today who want to know, how can I be part of God's kingdom? How can I be part of God's people? How can I receive that promise? I'm going to pause the story, tell you that, share the gospel message with you, and then we'll pick up what this means for those of us in the kingdom of God. Uh, Our biggest problem is that we have sinned against God. We all do things we should not do and we know we should not do and have offended God on high. This is why we die at the end of our lives because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And the Bible is so clear that after death comes judgment for all that we have done. Uh, This began in Genesis 3 early in this story and continues on, but the Lord promised he would send someone to rescue us in this story, and he did. It was a descendant of one of these characters here, and his name was Jesus. He was, he was born of a virgin named Mary, who was also a descendant of these people. And he lived and taught with authority. He would open up his mouth and preach, and everybody was dialed in because he had authority and truth when he preached. And he would heal people with authority and power and show that he had authority over the truth, and he had authority over our suffering and over sin and all the problems in the world. And then as that great one who has power, over sin and over death and over truth. He, he willingly went to a cross where he died an excruciating criminal's death, though he was sinless himself. And the, and the wage of sin is death, but, but here is Jesus, God made man who never sinned, and he willingly died. And what that does for us then is if we are willing to look to him and trust him, that death for his sinless life pays for our sin. He didn't have any sin to pay for, so it pays for our sin. And what he did next was he rose from the dead, and if we will trust him, that resurrection from the dead guarantees us eternal life forever and makes us part of his kingdom. To receive all of those blessings, forgiveness for your sins, eternal life in his kingdom with him when he comes, and so much more in him, you just need to receive him in faith. Look to this Jesus and say, you are the one who can rescue me. I trust you. If you only look to him in faith like that, Well, the next step, the first thing to do as one of the people in his kingdom is be baptized in his name. Come talk to me or Paul or one of us about that. We'll get you right up there in front of everybody and show everyone what the Lord has done in your life. We're actually about to do this soon for somebody else, and I can't wait. Uh, Once you're in this kingdom, then we're ready to hear what this particular text says to us. For those of us inside... That same principle of the Lord loving to elevate the lowly, the loving to choose the overlooked, still applies. Even here in the church, those of us that are lower are, are lovely to him. And he says, I love to elevate you and lift you up. I love to choose the unlikely ones and put them in positions of prominence. Even Either the last guy that you would ever expect to be leading the church leads the church and does it well, or, or someone that we just overlooked and overlooked and overlooked. When he comes back, he puts them in a high spot in the kingdom. He says, of all the sons I could have chosen for this, I reached down and chose the second-born grandson, the eleventh-born son. The overlooked ones are the ones that he loves to choose for things like this. He does this over and over in the scriptures. When it comes time to rescue the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, uh, 
Uh, He chooses a man named Moses. He appears to him in a burning bush. And he says, Moses, take off your sandals. This place is holy ground. And then he says, go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Let them come out and worship me. And Moses says, I, I can't even talk right. Like, I don't know if he had a speech impediment, stuttered, something. He's like, I, I am the, because of my physical abilities, I am the last person to go and be your mouthpiece before a mighty king. And the Lord says, I got two answers for you. I'll send your brother Aaron to help you. You'll have help. And better than that, I will go with you. I will make my glory known in your weakness. Later, it comes time to choose a king. And Jesse has many sons, and they're all great warriors, all the kind of guys you want to have leading your battle and your army in the battle. And and Samuel the prophet gathers them all together, goes down the line, looks at all of them, and he says, this, none of these guys are going are gonna to cut it. What's going on? Jesse, do you have any other sons? And Jesse said, nope, that's all of them. Okay. Jesse, you sure you don't have any other sons? Like, I, I, I think that there's something going on here. And Jesse finally says, well, I mean, I got one more, but he doesn't really count. Like, he's like the runt of the litter, and he's out shepherding the flocks right now because he's not good for much else, but... I'll go get him if you want, I guess. And Samuel says, well, we are not going to sit down until he comes here because the Lord has chosen him as king. He takes the the runt of the litter, the one that that the father just kind of forgets about and dismisses and says, I choose this one to be king over my people. He chooses Paul, the least likely person to become a leader in God's church. This guy breathed out threats and persecuted Christians. And the Lord chooses him to become an apostle and bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And and then along the way, he gets what he calls a thorn in the flesh, some kind of deep fleshly temptation or some kind of physical ailment maybe that just plagues him and gets in the way of his work and his ministry and his life so much. And he says, I prayed three times that the Lord would remove it. And every time the Lord answered the same thing, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is is made perfect in your weakness. So he likes to take the guy that can't catch and put him on first base so that he can make his power known in our weakness. And he likes to choose the the second-born, forgotten grandson of Jacob over these sons who have been fighting for the prime place in this inheritance the whole time. So that means then that this is a place where the lowly are, are lifted high and held in a high esteem. And this is a place where we don't, we don't fight for position like the brothers did. It means that, that to be great in the kingdom of God, the way of Reuben and the way of Simeon and the way of Levi isn't going to cut it. Leading like Reuben and reaching out to grab what is yours, no matter the harm that you do to others or the way that you might be dishonoring those who are leading for you, just grabbing and grabbing and I want this. The way of Reuben doesn't make you great in the kingdom of God. The way of Simeon and Levi, we will roast our enemies in vengeance. It does not make you great in the kingdom of God. 
No, to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to be content to appear insignificant today. And that's really the point today. There's just one point today. To be great in the kingdom of God tomorrow, be content to appear insignificant today. To put it in the terms of the story, be content to be Jacob's forgotten grandson, and the Lord will make you great in his kingdom. This is actually the same message that Jesus taught in a very similar situation, right? Here we have 12 brothers fighting over the first place in the kingdom, so to speak, in Jacob's family. Well, even while Jacob at this point is dying, in a very similar way, Jesus is walking to Jerusalem. He is telling his disciples of his impending death, saying the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners, he'll be crucified, and on the third day he will rise. And his disciples aren't listening. He's literally telling them the gospel before it happens. They're not listening because they are arguing over which one of them will be the greatest. Just like Jacob's 12 sons were doing, Jesus' 12 disciples are doing the same thing, arguing over who's going to be first in the kingdom. And so he just says, all right, pause. I'm going to pause what I was talking about. Guys, the way of the world is to lord it over the people that you lead. Everybody's trying to get into the top slot, and this is not how our kingdom works. Our way and our kingdom is that even the greatest among you acts as a servant. Just like me, he says. I am the greatest among you, Jesus can say. And I came not to be served, but to serve others, even to give my life as a ransom for many. So this is the way of our kingdom. The way of the world outside is to fight and fight and compete to try to be on top. And the way in these walls, the way in this kingdom is to say, I'm just happy I got in the door. If, if my part in the play is to be Jacob's forgotten grandson, praise God. I'm just glad he let me in here in the first place. If we are content to do that, the Lord will make us great in his kingdom. So the point again is to be great in the kingdom tomorrow. Be content to appear in significance today. There are several ways the rest of the scripture applies this, and the first one is for everybody. Several others are for particular people, but let me give you the one for everybody first. We see the example in the Apostle Paul. If we're going to be content to appear insignificant today, that means you need to take your resume before God and, and just crumble it up and throw it out. Right? Any reason that you might boast before God or even boast before yourself and say, I'm a little bit better than the rest of these people because we just crumble it up, toss it. This is what Paul does. He says, if anybody thinks they've got a reason to boast, I can outdo them, right? He says, he just goes through his resume. I was born into the tribe of Benjamin. Most Jews that day didn't know what tribe they were a part of. He did. His family did the research. A Hebrew among Hebrews, meaning I actually speak. Speak Hebrew, so I got the pedigree to be great in this kingdom. Studied at the feet of Gamaliel. That's like going to an Ivy League school and then working in the White House, right? All the connections, 
all the best teacher. As to zeal and righteousness, I was a Pharisee. I was the kind of people that, the kind of one, one that people look to to say, how should I live before Yahweh our God? They would look to him for his example. I had so much zeal that I persecuted the church when I thought that they were wrong. I mean, this guy has a resume. And he says, but everything I had, I counted a loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. As it's written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The prophet earlier says, let the one who boasts, boast in this, that he knows and understands me. Right? So if you're going to be proud of one thing, you're going to say, I got this to my name. It's that you know Jesus. That's the best thing about you, Christian. It's not your appearance. It's not your greatness or lowliness. It's not any character quality you have. The best thing about you is that you know Jesus. And that's going to get you into heaven. That's going to get you resurrection from the dead. That's going to get you forgiveness for your sins. So, so crumble the other stuff and just toss it, burn it on the way down while you toss it. Like get rid of that stuff before God and go before him as one who knows Jesus. Now, if you go with that heart, then when the Lord says, okay, here's your place in my kingdom, well, a content heart like that is going to say, great, I didn't even think I was going to have a place. I'll take it, right? Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord and not in his position in the kingdom, not in his pedigree, not in anything else. If we can be content to be Jacob's forgotten grandson, the Lord will lift us high in the kingdom. This means something to specific people, too. The Bible applies this message to specific people. Uh, It applies it to those of us who are serving in church. Many of us just have, you know, what you might think of as non-glorious service roles. Not really leadership position, but we do something with our hands, right? We serve in the nursery and hold babies while they cry and sit up. We serve coffee in the morning or hand out bulletins or nothing that we're going to get a great award for doing. or uh, We we just do it. We serve because we love to serve. And the Lord gives us a a lesson during the the period of the the desert wanderings for Israel where uh, there's a a man called Korah who is a a Levite. Uh, And he has a job like that. He's a doorkeeper in the temple, in the tabernacle, God's house. So he gets to be in God's house and serve in it and be a doorkeeper. His relatives, Aaron's family, get to be priests in the house of God. So he gets envious of that, covetous of that. And he leads a rebellion and goes up to Moses and says, how dare you limit us and not let us be priests like our brother? You limit us to a lowly doorkeeper. How dare you? And Moses says, Korah, is it not enough to you to, to get to serve in the house of God? That's more than we deserve. And Korah won't listen. He won't have it. He leads a rebellion. And in the end, the ground opens up and swallows him in the whole rebellion. But that's not the end of the story. Then his sons, who have fled from the rebellion, they say, we don't want any part of this. Either them or their sons after them, somebody called the sons of Korah, write a psalm that's one of my favorites. It has a line a lot of us know, better is one day in the courts of the Lord than thousands elsewhere. Song of love for just getting to be doorkeepers in the house. And they even say the line, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. 
So here are men who watched their father with covetousness, not be happy, just to serve in God's house. And they said, oh, not me. I just can't believe the Lord let me in. I can't believe that I get, I get something to do here in the kingdom. I'd rather serve coffee in God's house than, than do the things that I used to do. I'd rather work in the nursery in God's house than do the things that I used to do. And if we can speak with that kind of contentment, then the Lord says, well, there's the one that I lift high upon my return. There's the one that I lift high in my kingdom. It's important because when you do a job like that, you know, you can be Let's say you're serving the coffee, and uh, the guest preacher of the day comes in, and so everybody flocks over there, and they can't wait to honor the guest preacher, and you're just there serving coffee. And then after the service, everybody goes up to the musicians and says, oh, the music was so wonderful today, and they, they commend the musicians, and you're just there serving coffee, and maybe the person you hand the coffee to says thank you, or maybe they don't. And there's not a lot of glory in the work. Well, the heart of Korah's sons, the heart of Ephraim and Manasseh here says, I'm not doing this to get glory here on earth. I know what I do is not insignificant, but I'm content for it to appear insignificant for a little while, knowing that the Lord will come and the Lord will make me great. So that's what it means for those of us that are serving here in the church. The Bible applies it very particularly to, to ladies as well. I'd say probably these words for any, any teenage or adult woman in the church who is a believer. First uh, Peter 3 and 1 Timothy 2 give really similar advice to women. Uh, and the advice is don't let your adorning be in clothes stuff. You know, braided hair in that day, fancy earrings, fancy dress. Uh, and in, in every era... If you want to appear to be a powerful woman, there's a way to dress and handle yourself, right? Today, it's that power pants suit and that posture and the boss babe look that they're all going for, right? If you want to appear to be a great woman in the world, there's a way to dress to show people, look how powerful I am. Look how beautiful I am. And the Lord says, well, the suit isn't bad and the nice hair isn't bad. You can braid your hair if you want to, but don't let that be your adorning. Let your adorning instead be two things, good works and a gentle and quiet spirit that's of great value in the Lord's sight. That to him is like a robe made out of fine gold. When When he sees the good works that women do, serving the poor, serving children, Uh, serving in the church, uh, giving to good causes, uh, loving their husbands, caring for their own children, all of this quiet, often behind-the-scenes work that women are doing that no one in the world is lauding them for, no one is lifting them up for in the world. The Lord says, that's a gold robe in my eyes. Those are gold earrings in my eyes. That is precious and of great value to me. This means something for a mom who is changing a diaper yet again and says, does anyone see that I'm doing this at two in the morning in the privacy of my own home, night after night after night? Does anyone see all that applesauce I shoveled into my child's mouth? Does anybody see all this stuff that I am doing? And the Lord says, good works and a quiet and gentle spirit are precious in my sight. And now those of us that are content with that, content to be even Jacob's forgotten grandson and all of the work that we were doing, 
he says, he says, for that I see you, and for that I lift you high in my kingdom. Now, at the end of the day, somebody has got to teach in the church, and somebody's got to lead the thing, and it becomes difficult to apply this principle when you're, when you're called upon to lead, right? Okay, what about, I, you know, I wasn't seeking leadership or teaching, I didn't want the glory of that, but it kind of came and found me, and somebody's got to do this, and I'm willing to serve and to do it. For those of us who teach, teach Sunday school, teach children, for those of us who lead in the church, uh, for me as pastor, if we wind up appointing co-pastors alongside of me, well, what does this mean for us to lead and yet at the same time be content to be the forgotten grandson? How do you do the two at once? Well, the Bible speaks very plainly and particularly to that. In Acts 20, Paul is speaking to the elders at Ephesus, and he's, he's about to leave them forever. He'll never see them again. Uh, and he says, Make a careful watch on yourselves, all of you. Watch yourselves, because the fierce wolves are going to rise up to devour the flock from among you. All right, so these are like the good guys, the guys installed as pastor elders in Ephesus. And he says, some of you are going to be false teachers. Watch yourselves. Now, that will put fear in you, right? Like some of us, some of the good guys are going to go astray and turn into wolves and devour the flock. And if we've been watching the news or the documentaries, we know that happens in the church. How do we avoid that? How do we not let that happen? Well, one is to watch yourself, like Paul says, but how do you, how do, you do that? Well, later he writes to Timothy, who is in Ephesus. So he's writing a letter that's going to go to the same place. And in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, he basically says, it happened, right? Some among the church, some teachers in the church have swerved away from the faith and wandered into destructive heresies. He says it in chapter one and then really nails it in chapter six in the end as well. And he says what happened was on one hand, they became puffed up in mind. They knew the truth and that knowledge puffed them up. And on the other hand, they imagined that godliness was a means of gain. They realized they can get rich teaching this stuff. And so with a, a puffed up heart and pride that wanted praise and attention and a greedy fist that wanted more and more and more money, they started seeing Christian ministry, the pastorate, as a way to get lots of money and lots of honor, a way to feed the ego and feed the bank account. And that, he says, basically poisoned their minds. They got to the point that they didn't even realize they were teaching heresy. And, and it works like that in the modern world still. You start realizing, oh, when I say this, the people really lean in and they come back next week. And then, and then, and then they give the next week. Ooh, I'm, I'm going to say that. more. When I say this, they don't like it very much. I better, I better not say that. And when the audience starts forming your message or... You can go on YouTube and get metrics and even know at what points in your video were people dialed in and what were the parts that they skipped. And you can figure out, what does my audience want to hear? I'll just feed them that more and more. More people will tune in and I will grow a big platform for myself. Same temptations are there for pastors today. And if we make ministry about getting famous, becoming significant, making more and more money, there's the path into false teaching. 
And that is why so many who are good at building up a following fall into false teaching. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is to be content to be Jacob's forgotten grandson. And that's what Paul says. Godliness with contentment is great gain. They are imagining godliness as a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So if you are teaching in Sunday school, or if you are teaching children, or if you are preaching here in the church, or even my own heart, hear this, the way that you guard your heart against false teaching is to make sure you do not fall to pride or greed, but instead be content to appear insignificant. Be content to pastor a small church in a town that has a hundred churches, right? And just never make it onto the map. If the Lord wants to do something with you, great, but be content if the Lord were to keep you insignificant. That's part of our vision for our church as well. If the Lord continues to grow us, at some point, we're going to outgrow this building, right? We grew 10% last year. We've already grown another 10% this year. Uh, You know, it'll take time, but eventually we're going to outgrow this building. But you need to know that our vision is not to become the biggest church in Greenwood or the most significant church in Greenwood. No, Greenwood already has plenty of big churches. It has actually, do you know, we have 98 evangelical churches just in Greenwood. Never mind those of you that live in Franklin and Whiteland and, and Indy and everywhere else, right? So plenty of churches here. But what if instead... We can be content to, you know, grow to two, three hundred and then just start sending out people and stay a small size forever, but send this group out to this struggling church across town and now there's another healthy church out there. Send ten families to a city on the other side of the world to all find jobs there and start a church there and bring the gospel to somewhere where it is not. What if we have that kind of a global impact for the Great Commission by being content to stay small ourselves? That's part of why we've moved from a fill-and-build vision to a fill-and-send vision, right? Uh, The Lord likes to take the the lowest people and and put them high. We want to get rid of our best people, right? We want to send them to the other side of the world and let them have a great impact for the gospel. To do that, we're going to have to be content being a small-ish church that isn't really on the map in Greenwood. But the reward for that is the reward of Ephraim, content to be Jacob's forgotten grandson, but lifted high over all of them. So I say to you, church, in closing, the very thing that Jacob says of Israel, may God make you like Manasseh and Ephraim. Let's pray together.